Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 135. Merry Christmas. Today, Jordan returns to the show as we discuss writing and remembering, some of the saints who are our friends, and the changing of times from the ancient world to the new apostolic age. Grab a cup of coffee, tea, cider, hot cocoa, or whatever, and join us in this week of Christmas. We hope that you enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby Online and serve as the alumni and public relations director. Okay, we are recording on a Monday morning. Good morning, Stephen. How's it going so far? Going pretty well. Actually, it's going really well. So we're, we're just talking before as we're getting started up about coffee, but this was a confession weekend in our family. Ah. And so uh, that's always nice. But, you know, sometimes you just go in and it's kind of like the laundry list of, yeah, these are the same sins I'm always committing. And, and it's just, it's nice. But this, this weekend, our priest had just really great advice. He was saying, well, why are you committing these sins? You need to reflect on that because there's sin takes some form of it. It's, it's filling some sort of good, some sort of need. So think about what's missing in your life. And I thought that was really good, good advice. So it was an exceptionally good weekend for a confession weekend, I thought. Mm-hmm. That's like a bonus, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that makes me think of an episode of, was it the Burrowshire podcast with Father Blake Britton and Brandon Vaught? They were talking about similar things along the, along those lines about confession and maybe i'm thinking of the wrong episode here so i may have credited incorrectly but thinking about why why are you committing that where is that coming from so that ties into several conversations we've had around here and we have jordan with us this morning good morning jordan good morning how are you guys doing well i have a, a funny story for you jordan um so two of my kids are in one of jordan's latin classes and so the other day, one of them was asking for some assistance on something. And so I, I queued up the recording from earlier in the week to kind of get up to speed with what was going on. And I, when I, so I see on the display is a prayer in Latin to start the class as you always do. And then when I pressed play, I heard my own voice. <laughs> and I was oh. like, hold on. And I thought I had like some audio file playing in a different app or something. And I was really, really thrown for a loop. Like what is happening? But then. It turns out you are playing a clip of a podcast for them, and it just took me a minute to, to figure that out, and, it, and every, <laughs> I just got a good laugh out of that. <laughs> yeah, I never, I never remember what I do in my classes. I have no memory of that. <laughs> I, I, we sometimes, I'll, I'll try to, something funny happens, so I'll show, I'll be showing my wife, and I'm like, oh, I did that also? I, I don't even, I have no memory of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they enjoy it so much, and they just laugh the whole way through. This one, the episode you were previewing for them was the Monsignor Shea episode up um, number 123. Oh, oh, yeah. But I, this, that was just a funny moment for me thinking, hold on, do what, what all do I have open here? And why am I hearing my- <laughs> So I guess I was playing that clip to start the class, like everybody here, like, like yeah. 15 seconds or something of it. Right. <laughs> yes, that was funny. Well, we are freestyling this morning. You know how I am about outlines, so we'll see what happens here. But we all have our coffee here, including me. I've, I've not yet finished with mine. So Jordan has his pot of coffee, which is bodes well for us, I think. And Yes, I wish I could share it, but <laughs> <laughs> we're limited. I think I'm going to have to interrupt some of my children running past as we, as we go along here for another cup as we're <laughs> starting this Monday morning. Now, Jordan, I think my wife is trying to give you a run for your money on on, uh, on Latin class popularity. I just I heard her um, conducting a class with her. I think it's Latin three. This and they were doing a penguin murder mystery in Latin. Whoa! So, oh. <laughs> well, she she's way ahead of me if she's doing that stuff. So <laughs> clever. Yeah, I, I, I think it started with a, a penguin badge that she randomly was giving to people just to make them wonder why they earned a badge and what the penguin was for. And oh, so, yeah. 
it morphed into a, a murder mystery where they had to read their backgrounds in Latin and try to figure out who killed the penguin. And Wow, I bet they love that. They, they love badges. And so for any listeners that don't know what we're meaning by badges, if you're not in Colby, the, um, the, learning, um, the learning platform that we use is called Schoology. And within that, it, it looks a little bit like Facebook, but students have their profile and they can earn badges from teachers in classes. And I'm telling you, students will do almost anything for a badge. So yeah, <laughs> if it's a good one, I make custom badges, but I try to limit them where they're very hard to get. And it's usually for for favors for me, like listen to this podcast, for example, I might give them a badge for that, but uh, they'll, they'll do anything for badges. That's a great idea of her. Yeah, that was very clever. Well, we're just kind of catching up here. Jordan, we've, since we last recorded, you've had a couple of articles come out in Prime Matters that you were telling us about in episode 116, Things I Would Tell My Students. So how, what kind of feedback are you getting from that? It's been really great. I, I, I'm surprised at um, the number of people who've reached out to me, people I know, but, but typically I, I wouldn't converse with, but they saw the article somewhere and, and wanted to... Um, offer their thoughts about it or, or encouragement to go farther, those kind of things. But what I, what has been really great is um, Prime Matters reached out and they really liked the first, the first article that I wrote, The Hidden Origins of Victim Culture. And um, they offered me to, well, they offered to publish the series. So I was, I was doing this little series we had talked about in a previous episode of things I would tell my students under the guise of that I'm not able to teach. I, I, I'm always teaching languages and I, and, but my, I'm not a classicist. I didn't get my degree in classics. I, I learned the languages to do further research for what my field is, which is new Testament and early Christian studies, but it's developed into this really cool thing where I'm able to, I, like a spy, go back into the pagan world and sort of see the differences between that world and what came immediately after it. And so showing the distinctions between the world before Christ and the world after Christ is one of the most exciting things for me to do. And and this series of articles fits in, I think, well with the um, initiatives of Prime Matters. That's that's probably why they, they liked it. I mean, it just kind of fits. But as a writer, it is it's amazing to get um, a real destination for your work because so I, I don't want to write blog posts. I don't want to just send things to my friends. I want a place to publish. And um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And then I'm just adding the, you know, the pressure to, to get these articles done. It's, it's hard to do when you're doing something that probably you don't have anything to to model after in a way. It's it so it does feel like I'm doing something new, which is hard to do. And so I found myself for the second article. It was the hardest article I've ever written. That's only three pages long, but it took like twenty drafts, and I have no no recollection of how many hours I actually spent working on it. But um, that one, I I hope people will like it. It's called the Enemy Next Door. You can find it on on Prime Matters, and um, it basically in that one I'm just showing how in the pagan world there were two words in Latin for enemy, and so there's enemies that can be dehumanized who are not part of your society, and then there's enemies who are within your society which are rivals, and um, it it just kept growing really big. The article did because the the word for the enemy who is the one that can be dehumanized is hostess. And it's obviously Catholics can easily connect that because it is etymologically connected to hostia, which is the Eucharistic host. Um, And so I was weaving that into the article, but it didn't really work. So that's going to be another article. I had to do a really basic, who is my enemy and what kind of enemy are they? I think those topics, I mean, it's so much fun when we, we get to talk about this Jordan is we're smoking pipes every week, which is is a is a great. Even though we're in different states, we can still do that. We still the, do that. Together. The best hour of the week. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's become apparent to me just over as we're look as we've been looking at Colby's curriculum and kind of delving in that that is really 
a fundamental it's it's one of the key components about what we do here in Colby in the high school years in particular going through and looking at what what was life like before the incarnation what what was virtue what you know looking at some of those great works i mean you look at the iliad and the odyssey those are basically the two fundamental works for what is virtue in the military and in um in the in the more um home life in the odyssey you get and how how that's how that's different in and then of course you get into the area of christendom and in, in 11th grade year and more modern stuff in the 12th grade year but that is a fundamental and i don't think we emphasize that enough but um as monsignor shay the the book they put out there at the university of mary and talking about how we're we've we're exiting the era of Christendom and entering an apostolic age. It's so it's, it's so important for us to understand that that change from the world before Christ, before the incarnation, and how dramatically different the world is after the incarnation. And then uh, this I love this about your article showing about how exiting this era of Christendom, there's this almost a perversion then or this weird sort of it's it's now taken for granted but there's kind of a perversion of those christian uh, virtues and and what we and it's it's it seems vital actually that we we start to really focus on that and, and understand that today yeah and i i think that's why it needs to be more basic than what what so i have to pare my articles down a lot because um I, th I think we have to ask some fundamental questions. And the fundamental question for this second article is who is my enemy? And it's sort of a, a mock, it's like a perversion or a mock question of the scribe, the mosaic scribe who asked Jesus, who is, who is my neighbor? And that, that is really profound. I don't think that that question, who is my neighbor, could have arisen in any other culture than uh, the Jews at the time of Christ because they had heard Abraham will be the father of many nations. They, and, the, and the prophets had been speaking about this sort of worldwide um, acceptance and drawing people into God's kingdom, but it hadn't happened yet. I mean, everybody was, was segregated into these... Each tribe was, even if the tribe was as big as an empire, was exclusive to itself. It was its own species almost. They didn't even look at people outside of that tribe as, as human, really. And I think that's why when uh, people, people will describe exile as worse than death, because in exile, you're existing in no man's land. You're nothing. You're, you're a non-human. You don't belong to any, any group. So what I, I say quickly, and maybe this will help explain it if somebody reads the article as well, um, there was a sentence, and I wanted, I, I wanted to make a lot more about this, but I'm going to have to do it at an, another time, but that who is my neighbor is the first question of Christendom. It, it, it is, it's sort of because Jesus himself says there, or, or maybe you could say it's the last question of the pagan world might be a better way to say it. But Jesus answers in one gospel with the parable of the Good Samaritan, which makes a hero out of an enemy to the Jews, which is really interesting. Um, in another gospel, um, the, in the same encounter when they're, they're asking what, what is the greatest commandment, it's the same episode, but they, they record it in just a slightly different way. Um, they say to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And um, this, the, the, in this encounter, um, the scribe praises Jesus for knowing this and, and, and reflects it. He says it again, and he said, all of these, to love your neighbor as yourself, is greater than burnt offerings or sacrifices. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. And I think that's profound that he's saying that you recognize that sacrificing and burnt offerings of the pagan world um, are, are worth not as much as loving your neighbor as yourself, that that is saying you're, you're close, you are close. That's the way that Jesus answers him. So I think that this is, is telling us of what comes, which is Christendom, when they're commissioned to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, when St. Paul is saying there is no longer Jew nor Greek, 
nor a slave nor free, all of that. I think it, that it's saying this message is for everyone. And for the first time, uh, we and we lose that 2,000 years later with missionary endeavors and the whole world basically has heard by now there are no peoples existing out there who have never heard, who knows what they've heard about it, but at that time they had never heard it. So part of the gospel and the good news was this, that there aren't these tribes, there aren't these tribes that were that were um, <clears throat> established on a sacrifice, and that's what plays into the hostia, the, the sacrifice offered for the whole world that sort of equalizes everyone. But another thing, another direction I want to go eventually, and I tried to in this article, but it just made it too big, was during the Albigensian heresy in the, in the Middle Ages, um, they had to ask themselves then, they should have asked themselves, who is my enemy? Because what happened was they said, they went to, a, um, to Albi in France and said, um, there's a heresy happening here, kill everybody, kill them all. We can't sort this out. Kill them all and let God sort it out, is what they said. So they had to ask, who is my enemy? A reversal, because everybody looked the same. Everybody basically acted the same, and the division was doctrinal. And that's totally different than the pagan world with its false peace that it had offered. And so I think when they started asking, who is my enemy, that sort of ended, it, it, it weakened Christendom as a state, as, as a functionary to carry out, um, you know, carry out prosecution and things like that. It sort of ended it. Now the church doesn't have that power. Um, it doesn't have that same power to, to do that. We have our nation states and all of that. So we're in more of a confusion, I think, than ever with who is my enemy next door? What, what do they believe? I mean, and why do I sympathize with somebody on the other side of the world? And I feel a connection to them through the internet. I don't even know the name of the guy that lives right next door to me. So many directions you can go from there. It's so great. Since we first heard about this article in development, Jordan, I've been thinking about the, the hostia and the host and that has really stuck with me thinking about it. So I'm glad to see it coming along as it has and it's and there's more yet to come. I remember as you've been working on these, you were mentioning, and as you said earlier, your your multiple drafts of this. I think that is uh, really interesting to hear, especially for students who are working on their own compositions, like the, the process that you have gone through. Will, will you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think that that, that is, um, if you're doing if you're doing something worthwhile, if you believe that it's worthwhile, you you have to know when when to stop and when not to stop, and that's the hardest part. I think in undergrad or high school, a lot of the problem is you are trying to you're trying to write what the teacher wants to hear first of all, which is necessary. I mean, you're you're trying to show that you've uh, assimilated the material and you can you can articulate it back to them, but. I think when it's for an assignment, students automatically think it's not worth as much as as uh, as it would be if they were writing without the without the the chains of being chained to a class for this thing. But I I would encourage students to save those things and to take it take it more seriously. In that it might be valuable, it it could be valuable. You might develop it more when you get to college or even afterwards. I mean, there's no we we're so segmented in that we have these these kind of artificial stages that we've set up that students move through and, and you know here you're in fourth grade this is what you learn then fifth and sixth and the same thing happens in college and and even um, in high school where you think um you know you think there is a destination for what I'm writing but it's just the teacher who's going to read it I would say save it and and dig as deep as you can <clears throat> with it. Uh, not not everyone will want to do that because no, not everyone's aspiring to be a writer or intellectual. But there's plenty of Colby that are, and I think that you can do a lot more than you think you can do. And um, you could you could develop these kind of ideas that you're getting from your classes and just staying with it. There is a time to to call it done. And everything is is imperfect. I mean, when you're done, it's always it's always um, you, you read it again. And you're like, oh, I would have said it this way or that way. So that's the other thing you have to get over when it's not with a deadline for a class. But but if you think that there's something valuable in it, 
that you work it out until until it's done and done and don't don't accept it's pretty good you know i i i think so i've talked to you bonnie about like leaving meat on the bone you know in my own writing and i think you got to get to the point where where you feel like you've done pretty well. You're looking at the chicken wing and it's pretty much clear of <laughs> all the chicken. And then you're like, okay, this one, this one's done. You know, you don't have to eat the bone itself, but uh, get it, get it as good as you can and then call it done. And it will open up tons of new things for you when you take it serious in that way. And then as far as the process of doing it, you have to put in time. You have, and and I don't count the time that I'm writing. I don't even like think I wrote for an hour today or two out, whatever it is. I have done that in the past when I was more like the students. Well, during my dissertation, I would wake up early and I'd write for a set amount of hours, and I just had to do that to get enough on the page to to turn it into something big. But um, now I don't really do that. It's more about the the I think the quality rather than the quantity of what I'm doing. I'm just trying to trying to articulate ideas that I can basically see in my head, but they're so hard to to get them out on the page. And in in the in the front, the guy that wrote the foreword for my my uh, when the earth was flat book said that the writing is effortless, but it's not effortless. Maybe it reads that way, maybe, but it's not at all. It, it, it's not at all. It's very hard. You're talking about this. It, it was it was making me think of actually going back after my wife and I were just married. We're getting my stuff from my old childhood home, and we found this stack of my papers throughout, you know, from like sixth grade through high school. And we were just for fun sitting down and reading some of those. And that was just kind of interesting, both to think to kind of get that glimpse back what was I thinking and what was I focusing on and it was actually kind of interesting as well to see kind of because that encompassed kind of a developmental stage where you know by the time I was a senior I was making good solid arguments but my seventh and eighth grade papers not so much more just like a <laughs> summary sort of thing but it, it also makes me think about how much I mean this might be because I've had multiple football concussions but how much I forget about things so you know when I'm in something, especially when I'm focused enough to be writing about it, you know, like my my senior thesis when I was at TAC, when I go back and I read those and I think, wow, I was, that was, I actually have a hard time understanding what I was saying back yeah. then because I've forgotten so much. But I think that just, I mean, I don't keep a journal and I should, but it, what you're saying makes me think, this, that could be so valuable just to to be writing down some of these things like this is what I'm thinking about now. And even though it seems obvious, I'm going to forget about these deeper thoughts within a year. And if I could go back and just kind of page through and think, oh, yeah, that was that was good. I, I was on to something there. <laughs> that would be that would be valuable just as a in spiritual life for development or or whatever, in addition to. Well, both, I guess developing that habit of writing but also then trying to make it good and like you're saying when when you actually have to produce for somebody else then yeah i i was i was going to ask you about that when you when you go back because I, sometimes you go back and you're surprised by your own self like that by your young self you're like how did i know all that then but now i'm learning from myself you know, 20 years on or whatever. And I think part of that is because, yes, it's a sin, I think, to to think, to assert yourself too early and to say, like, I, I'm the one who knows, I have the answers and all of that. But it's equally a sin to say, I don't have anything to offer and I shouldn't be doing it. Um, that's something that I've I've been discerning, I guess, lately is trying to find where I sort of fit in you know, and do I have something to say? Because it's easy to say, you know, I'm, I, you know, to denigrate yourself and just kind of say, I'm, I don't have anything to offer, but that's not true. People, that'd be like saying, you don't want to meet anyone new. You don't want anyone to know anything about you. And um, there are, uh, interestingly enough, I'm reading this book about a hermit, a local hermit here in New Hampshire who died in the 1960s. Very interesting, amazingly interesting story. And um, he he would journal 
And that's how they knew about him. From the time he was 15, he would he would just recount little things like what the weather was that day, how many eggs his chickens had laid, um, and how who visited, who was visiting. So this actually opened up like a sort of um, something that you don't you, you wouldn't normally think about. So he, as a boy, he was living out in this remote farm near Keene, New Hampshire. And he would record every visitor that came or everyone that they went to. And the neighbors were constantly, they'd travel a couple miles, but they'd see each other. So they might have, like this one day, he had 10 different neighbors stopped in at different times. He and his siblings were sent to different neighbors and it was to borrow this or that, or to bring, we have extra butter, here's some butter. And um, the author smartly was saying that, that that is something that is kind of hidden we don't assume that they were without automobiles traveling to each other's houses constantly, but she was saying his journals make that clear that that was a big part of life for rural rural people then was to visit neighbors and things. So why is he recording this as like a 15 year old who, who knows, but that's how this book came about now. And we know something more about life as it was for him by him doing this. I think sometimes we're just given things or we're, we're given a state of mind to share it with somebody else. So some, so I think here's another reason to possibly record things because sometimes there's, I think there is just something where it's not super important to you, uh, but the Holy spirit has given it to you to give to somebody else. And for them, it's, it can be what they need to hear right now. And I, I remember sitting around a table and it was like, Steve, you gave us the best advice you were you gave me the best advice when i was heading off to college and I, so i'm so thankful for that and it was like and what did i say <laughs> they had they had to tell me it was like oh i think i yeah I, I guess i remember saying that but it was gone for me it was it was not something like this is what i tell every college student or whatever but yeah so i think there's another valuable reason i think just to to uh to be putting some of that down and then maybe occasionally reflecting back on the year or the years that are there in the past. Too. It shows that you, it shows that you lived. And if, if for whatever reason, people want to dig into who was Stephen Hayden, here's his journal. Here's, you know, that, that it shows that you, nobody knows in at, while there, while us regular people don't know while we're living, how it's all going to turn out or, or anything, you know, it's, um, it, it's it's making me think of um, Rhinish, who we've talked about before, Franz Rhinish. So, for the listeners who may not know, it's a it's a particular um, going to future saint, a martyr. He was killed by the Nazis in uh, during World War II. He was a priest, and he was the only priest out of seventeen thousand Catholic priests that were conscripted into um, Hitler's army to serve as chaplains or whatever, or sometimes as soldiers, as he was. Um, he was the only one to refuse signing the oath of allegiance out of 17,000, and he was killed to make a testimony out of him that you don't dare, um, don't dare stand up to Hitler. And so I'm translating a book that's written by this uh, Father Kreuzberg is his name. And uh, Kreuzberg, um, Heinrich Kreuzberg, if, if you don't mind, I'll just read this little part of what he wrote in his foreword, which I think it shows... Um, it shows what he's doing and why it's important, but he says, the dead are binding upon us with reverence and gratitude. And this is the man who, who wrote the book about, um, about Rhinish. With reverence and gratitude, we should remember those who sacrificed blood in their very lives during the years of Nazi persecution, whether in prison or concentration camps. Among the victims of this period was the priest Franz Rhinish who was beheaded in Brandenburg on August 21st, 1942. I came to know him while he was in the Berlin Wehrmacht prison. And in accordance with the custom of the early Christian times, I collected all available material about him from the very first day. The Nazi government attempted to create criminals rather than martyrs. And for that reason, the examination of some fatalities proves to be very difficult. But here, a careful assessment is even more important so that the evidence is not lost. The case of Rhinish is likely one of the most valuable of all Christian prison literature and should be included in the series of great confessions from prison cells. 
and then he goes on and on. But um, I, I think it's, it's amazing that this priest knew, and he said from day one when he met him, it was the last six weeks of Reinish's life, and um, he, he visited him every day and recorded his whole story, had him, had Reinish himself write a lot of things that he handed over to him at the end. And um, Reinish himself had kept journals and things so that all of that was collected. And um, you would not have, and in translating this, his childhood, his teenage years, his college years, he was he was wild. You would never think he was going to be what, what he became. And you would have never thought that. In fact, when he went to, um, he had become a priest, he tried to leave, he joined the Palatines, and he was in Bamberg, Germany, in the novitiate. And he couldn't take it. There were too many rules. Um, smoking was one of them. They made him hand over all his cigarettes. And he battled for three weeks saying, I can't take this anymore. And then he tried to escape. He tried to climb over the wall because he was ashamed that he didn't, uh, that he was ashamed of himself, that he was too weak. He was too weak. And he didn't want to say goodbye. So he tried to sneak out at night. And as he passed, they had a Lord's Grotto there, and he heard a voice saying, stay, stay. And um, he ended up staying, and it changed everything for him. So from a man who was too weak to go through, I mean, he couldn't, whatever his comforts, his cigarettes, his whatever, he, he, was, he couldn't handle uh, the, be, being uncomfortable for that time. To go from that to being able to be beheaded when everyone else is telling him, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. You can sign, you can sign the, the oath of allegiance. In fact, that's what Father Kreuzberg wanted to make sure when he met Reinisch was that he was sane and doing this for the right reason because he did not have to do it. And if anyone out there has seen the movie A Hidden Life, which is um, on Amazon, it's about uh, Franz Jägerstädter. It's a very good movie. Um, Jägerstädter did the same thing but he was a married man with children and he knew of Reinisch. He was beheaded in the same prison. Everything's the same. He, Reinisch going, going to his death in this way inspired uh, Jägerstädter to go through with it himself and, and do the same thing. And he's canonized. Jägerstädter is like, he's, he's more known. Reinisch is still not that well known in the English speaking world, although he's big in Germany and Austria. And that's what I want to do is make him known such an amazing story and you've you've been to where his remains are now right he you've had your own experience with him yeah that that that's what started it all so i've said elsewhere that i i always feel jealous of the my cradle catholic students because they always seem to have these saints that they are latched onto and obscure saints that I've never heard of. And I don't know why, I think it's beautiful though. They have like some obscure modern saint somewhere in like Poland or somewhere, you know, and, and I'm surprised. I'm like, how did you ever even learn about this person? Why are you drawn to them? And they, a lot of times they can't explain it. It's just like they, they know the person or more than that, they're known by the person. And that's what happened to me as we were, we were visiting the Schönstatt shrine um, in Fallender, Germany, and outside, right outside of the chapel, it's a beautiful little chapel. You can Google it, Schönstatt. Um, they had, a, they have like three or four graves sitting there. And as we were walking up to visit this, his just stood out to me. And I, I the way, I, the only way I can describe it is, it's as if he like nodded or waved as I was walking up. There was a little candle burning in front of his name and it just stuck with me. It's from that time on, I've, I've tried to gather what I can learn what I can about him. And I, I feel an attachment that I think is probably what I see in my students with their saints. I, I think, I think it is mine had always been biblical figures, St. John or different, different people, because uh, I grew up you know, reading the Bible a lot as a, a Protestant pastor's son. Um, and I wasn't as familiar with all the other ones, but this one, Franz has like really uh, become important in my life, my everyday work. And uh, I think that's the relationship that, that others have. Being a convert, I think I'm, I'm similar, Jordan, where I, I, 
I have a fondness for when I hear stories about saints, but when I, with the cradle Catholics, I mean, I've, I've heard stories of people saying, yeah, I had this, I had a dream or I had a vision of this person telling me this thing. And then, you know, not even like saying this is very, this wasn't like a normal dream or, or whatever. And, and, you know, you start looking and it's like, oh, this is this blessed person that, I mean, there's actual, and to my Protestant mind still back there, I think, well, that's, that's crazy stuff. You know, that, that doesn't happen. It's like, well, of course that happens because these saints are in heaven and are praying for us and are loving, you know, loving us and establishing things, trying to help us get to heaven. Of course this happens, but it's just me <laughs> thinking, no, that's, that, that's just like fairy, fairy tale stuff as well. But I, I think, I think some of these nice cradle Catholics, which um, don't have that sort of resistance necessarily to that. But. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. You know, I, I, I wanted, I wanted that. I wanted what I, I saw with them, but I, I guess you don't understand. Like I thought that my devotion to St. John or, or to somebody, St. John the Evangelist, or I thought that that was um, the same sort of thing, but uh, the encounter was real and, and it showed me another level of things. And I mean, I've, it, it just keeps coming, coming back. And I, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know exactly how to articulate the, the way that, um, that it's present always now in my life, but uh, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. And I, I feel I feel compelled to to I guess help in a way. So I feel grateful also that that I have this opportunity to do a to do a translation of a key work. There's a lot, there's a lot more out there to be done. And people, you can you can find some. There's one good article that summarizes everything um, online somewhere. I forget exactly where. There's a Wikipedia page about Rhinish also, but um, there's not a lot beyond that. I guess somebody wrote a book uh, recently, but there it's somebody from Ireland and it's based on the story of Rhinish. And it, apparently it goes all over the place. He was writing it to try to get it uh, piggybacking off of a hidden life. So he wrote it like a movie script and um, filled in like all these details that just aren't there and stuff to make it really dramatic and acceptable as a, as a movie script. But I think this uh, translating, translating a, a, an original work by somebody that knew him is really one of the, the key things that needs to be done to help bring awareness in the US. My wife was recently in Austria and amazingly, she met a man whose father knew Rheinisch. He, he had met him, he knew him, and um, he he was amazed. He wanted to know what book is being translated, all of all of this stuff. So uh, I hope it's one of my goals to get this, get this translated and available by next year. Um, so if anyone's listening, you should look for it. The, the title is Franz Reinisch, A Martyr of Our Time, and maybe it'll be changed in the English uh, when we put it in English, but if that's the exact translation of the work now. And if anyone can read German, you can find it online as a PDF. So did you get hooked up with the that project when you were there at the time? No, this came recently. Um, actually, in, in this summer, writing articles. So I have several books about him and stuff, but um, writing articles this summer, what are becoming the Prime Matters series. I tried to write one. It was the uh, like 80th of, or whatever. It was the anniversary of his of his death, of his martyrdom. And um, I, try, I was um, trying to contrast him with, uh, I think it was Kelly Grant, someone, some Hollywood like golden era thing who had a movie come out on the same day that Reinish was martyred. And I was trying to show this contrast of lives, like over here in America, here's the richest Hollywood star, you know, his movies coming out. And um, that's what I started doing. I was trying to get that ready for his, for the occasion of, of, his, of his martyrdom. Um, but while I was doing it, I was I kept reading this, this book that I'm translating now to get more details and I just, 
said, much more important than this article is to put my efforts towards making others be able to just read it for themselves. And that's, that's what I, so that switched it for me late summer this year. Okay. Really interesting as you're saying this, how things are hidden in this case, obviously Hitler was and the Nazis were trying to hide this, make it a crime rather than a martyr, but that, that, well, that it, that he spoke to you and you formed this friendship with him, even though he was dead for 60, 70 years or whatever. But now God is taking this opportunity to share this life, this, this saint with, we'll have an opportunity. All of us will have an opportunity to meet him now and see what his life was like, which, you know, what has been hidden for, for so long. And, even as you started this out, we started talking about journaling and, and how important it is and how that you can kind of reveal what your life was like. Of course, it brought me back to Saint the Little Flower as well and how she was completely unknown. I mean, I mean if her superiors hadn't told her to write, we, we might ne never have known about her. People at the time were like, oh, what did she do, you know? But now as a doctor of the church, um, in Providence, there there has to be this um, this calling out to somebody else to it's like I God cr created and and brought forth this beautiful person, but it may be up to other people and likely, of course, with humility, it almost has to be somebody else who r shows that beauty, reveals that beauty to everybody. Everybody else, I mean, we've got Mother Teresa and, and John Paul II who were out there in front of people so we knew the great things they were doing and we could see their holiness but for the most part the holy beautiful saints that we have are tucked away and in those little they're they're stuck in a prison or they're doing the little things in a convent or they're serving their family being a, a beautiful mother and a grandmother so yes they touch people's lives and they do those things but oftentimes just how beautiful they are isn't known to everybody else so that's yeah and, and it's interesting you say that hidden that's um the about the other martyr franz jägerstater a hidden life like why why did they even title the movie that because uh that i think what this um father kreuzberg is pointing out that we have to make these stories known as that they were victims not criminals and um there's um one of the things that got rhinish in trouble a lot of it but i mean he, he felt lonely he he was he felt he was alone he he and he never imposed this is what i love is he never said all you priests you should be doing what i'm doing everyone out there you if you're a true catholic don't sign it was all personal and it reminds me in a small way of of when i converted i had to stop asking should it, do you have to be a catholic to be saved and only ask do I need to be a Catholic to be saved? The, only that and let God handle the rest because I, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I know for me. And that's what the, his decision of conscience uh, in making that, he said, I as a Christian and an Austrian can never take the oath of allegiance to a man like Hitler. And this shows the loneliness here. There must be people who are protesting against the this abuse of authority and I feel called to this protest. He didn't know that there were others out there. The entire crowd, everybody, the entire crowd was, uh, he didn't know if there were others there, but he said there must be people called to it. And he had everything. He could have been a lawyer. He was, he was um, you know, all the girls liked him in college. He was a popular guy. He was outgoing. He was funny. He was all these things. And yet he became this kind of a true leader, which tells the story of a martyr of our time. I mean, it's 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 amazing. I, I can't wait to finish the translation and and let people read it. Um, I want people to, to know him. It'll be like introducing, you know, you introduce a family member that or something that you've always wanted your your new group to meet and you're proud of them or whatever. That's how it sort of feels that it's up to me to to do that for him. 
I'm looking forward to that. Again, the the feeling of loneliness is, or or being alone in that. And so, it's reflecting back because as I start out talking about my, in my thoughts or my words of my priest here, who talking about sin, it was trying to fill those lacks. But but the fact that he didn't go toward sin and what would have been sinful for him that he did feel alone or you know quite there must be somebody out there but he let god's grace be sufficient for him and didn't go and do what was against his conscience i mean that's you know that's the, that's the side of a saint there somebody who's who's doing what he knows to be true and letting god fill in that even though he is alone and you know there has to be a need to fill that so that's, that's yeah it, it it's it's doing it, i think that's why it was really wise of um kreuzberg the priest who came to him and, and wrote this to really discern that and and make sure that reinish had discerned it also that he wasn't doing that his motives were pure was really the thing and they were putting so much pressure on him the the priest the chaplain the prison chaplain before kreuzberg came would uh refused him the eucharist like because of that he would they were saying why are you doing this and and trying to gaslight him into that he's the crazy one you know you're you're just doing this for attention for whatever it was all the way to the moment of death and i'll save that it's very graphic and and unbelievable unbelievably terrifying the way that uh how everything led up to um you know the the night leading up to his death i mean it's 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 crazy when you read it you you'll it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying and um that he that he, at any moment he could have stopped it any moment it's it's totally clear that at any moment he could have changed his mind they wanted him to they they didn't they wanted him to change his mind and join them because he was uh exposing exposing them and um I, I think it's it's really um, one other thing that Kreuzberg wrote here in the beginning. He said, our age, an age which lacks truly great men, an age which displays precious little holiness and by constantly foretelling of an apocalypse suppresses everything good. Our age needs memory of heroes and saints whose example can lead to salvation, whose testimony points upwards like a, a compass to heaven. And you know that that alone like caught me as I was going going through this saying uh, rather than I mean maybe there will be a time for me to to write some kind of article like I was thinking of doing but I just thought it was a brilliant idea and I sort of wanted to like put in in context and make the reader feel guilty for enjoying their old Kelly Grant classic movies or whatever so there was there's always like this maybe as like a selfishness in myself wanting to write it to to show look how i'm using these two people to to contrast and and uh, make make you feel guilty or put or some kind of uh, perspective on it but with this i th that i mean this this idea we need memories of heroes and saints that's what father kreuzberg did is wanted to make this memory known for other people to to read this and and to be comforted by it it's out of print in germany it, uh, you can find it online as i said but i think to maybe we can breathe some life into it by putting this english translation and letting a whole i mean a huge huge amount of readers have access to to reading and getting to know him this is another one of those treasures that i'm well i'm looking forward to reading reading this one you've got this done jordan but but as monsignor shea was talking about we 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 tend to focus oftentimes on the all the bad things i mean a lot of bad things in the last hundred years you know in our country and in our church and in our world but the the gratitude that we ought to feel toward god for giving us these beautiful saints um again whose stories i'm all of them that we've had and uh it's a good way to start the week for me i i do think that every everyone i i think the world is getting worse in some ways and better in some ways and i grew up thinking it was only getting worse towards apocalypse because i was an evangelical protestant thinking that the um, rapture was coming now i think there's a lot of hope for the future and 
And we don't have we have agency over it. We don't have to just sit and let things happen. And it's not politics uh, for for me at least. I I'm I would never get involved in politics at all. I think I think the only way, the real way to make the difference is personal piety. It's everyone asking themselves what what should I do? What can I do? And accepting what God calls you to do. And it's very hard. It's very hard to do that. But I think with models like Rhinish and, and others who are out there, new ones, new to be discovered, new to be, I mean, it's um, Hildegard, who my wife really likes, Hildegard von Bingen. She was told to write. She wasn't going to write. People are amazed by her for the wrong reasons because they're like, wow, a woman was writing in Latin at that time. That's amazing. And not at what she had to say. Um, and she's becoming more and more known and recently became a doctor of the church as well. So we have a mission and it's not just um, it's not just to be our own individual selves, but to plug in with these kind of models and learn from them what how they did it. One of the things I thought was fascinating and I want to see more about it as I'm translating is Reinish really distinguished that Nazism, he, he was incompatible with Christianity completely because it was a reassertion of paganism. And I totally agree. It was neo-pagan. I totally agree that that's what the rise of Nazism, what they tried to do was bring back the old gods and to say, we can make victims. We can have hosties enemies. We can dehumanize and kill people that aren't in line with us. And they try to reestablish those old pagan isolated communities. That was the whole goal of, of it was to say, we, the Aryans or whatever, however broad they were making it, we are the people, everyone else is not us. And it, and uh, Reinish recognized the, the changing of the times or the, the times of change or whatever. He saw that that's what was happening. But since that failed, my intuition is that Satan has changed his tactics and became even more of an imitator. Uh, if Nazism would have won, but it couldn't win, it couldn't win. There was no real, real force behind it. But let's say it did win. Then we may still be in some sort of weird neo-pagan age. But now I think we're in an age of a perversion, a supra Christianity heresy is what is where where we live the west and and uh, you know america and all of that so part of part of what has to be done like monsignor Shea is is involved in is recognizing the time that we're in the new apostolic age and what do we do how do we how do we how do we do god's work in this age not in the age of chesterton and belloc you know that was a totally different time it's good to read them but they lived in a different age than we do. Yeah. Underlying this, I've been thinking about, well, you know, clearly in this post-Christendom age, the interesting thing is, I was thinking, we don't see new religions popping up. I mean, we can call them religions, but that, that, say, that actually worship a being greater than ourselves. Yeah. And it seems to me that, as, you're, as you were saying this, it seems like that's the essential thing that we have as Christians, the advantage we have right now is that there is a desire within every man to acknowledge that power that's greater than themselves. And we know that it's an all loving, all powerful God who became man for us. But th those people out there who are, are nuns, who are falling away and they, they're claiming some sort of spiritualism, they're not going back to the pagan ways, like, like you're saying. So there's just a void. And our Lord is waiting there to fill that void. And so I think uh, fitting in with what Monsignor Shea is doing there, I think that is what we need to be doing is, is bringing that, filling that void for, for these, these people. It's just, yeah, this is becoming clearer to me as we, as we chat here this morning. And only two cups of coffee. Excellent. That seems such a daunting prospect if it's all on us. But here we have role models like Father Reinish and, and others helping us see our way forward with that. And certainly the personal piety dimension is huge. Yeah, and I guess, and it seems like it doesn't have to be a big, I mean, it doesn't have to be a big weight, I, hopefully for us. You know, mm -hmm. it seems like all we have to do is just share that there's 
Jesus. <laughs> we have a, a savior. I mean, so it's, and, and as you know, as Jordan was talking about there, it seems to me to, to, to not get too far out of what we can, we can do. So like, again, my favorite Stephen Covey always talks about our circle of control or circle of concern and our circle of influence. Yeah. Maybe that's what maybe the, I get the term, but oftentimes when you're out watching the the politics and everything you're way out here and you can't do anything about it and so you spend all of your time spinning your kind of your wheels and thinking oh this is the the government the church the this is all horrible it's like well you can't do anything about that so stop i love that what you're saying right there stephen about like filling the void and that there's an opportunity and all of that you you have to read even we, we were reading St. Augustine the other day in a class, and um, it's a part where he's praising God, the most powerful, the, the most secret, yet the most present, like all these contrasts that are beautiful. And then all of a sudden he switches his thought and um, he says, leading the proud into decay and they don't know it. And uh, we, we just read that. We think, oh, that, that applies to uh, Joe Biden or Angela Merkel or whoever, leading them into decay because look how old and ugly they're getting now. But that's not what he was talking. He's talking. I, I, am, I do think he is referencing the centuries down to his time of witnessing the collapse of paganism right around them. They couldn't believe that. It's leading the proud the the civic religion leaders the the roman pontifex maximus all this stuff, leading them into decay and and they looked very old and christianity looked very new and and vibrant and alive what it is now though they try now it doesn't feel that way because we've had this long history and um but it should it i th i really think it should that's why you know, listen to the episode with Monsignor Shea, and that really is insightful as to that we have opportunities now, but they're different opportunities than they had even a couple hundred years ago. We are right at the front, and we're responsible for laying a good foundation with basic things that need to be asked and exploited right now. And that's that's what I'm trying to do, try to bring a, a saint to knowledge here, trying to point out some distinctions between the pagan world and Christian world, and just a few things like that, I think is a good a good start for myself in helping this, helping with the work that needs to be done. I'm looking forward to reading the work when it's completed, Jordan. I, I sure enjoy getting to hear about it while it's in in process. It's really interesting to me and and helpful to students and aspire and writers every all of us. Yeah, you can't call yourself a writer or a painter or whatever if you don't do it, even if you have done it in the past, I would say. Um, I love this quote by Seneca, my favorite pagan, where he says, uh, he says, it's better to um, to be painting than to have painted. And it's more enjoyable to be painting than to have painted. And he's using it in another context, but I just love, I love that. And I sometimes when I tell my students, goodbye uh, in a congratulations you graduated letter or whatever I, I like to add that in because I felt it myself as a student when it was ending I thought it was uh you know you have to look at it as it's the beginning of something else so you don't just stop you start painting again uh on with something else and then you call yourself a painter so if you're a if you're somebody who if you're writing or whatever it is I think it's more literally going through the process, going through the steps, sitting at your keyboard, you're not going to feel inspired every day, of course, but it doesn't matter. If you write, you go back and you read what you've written, you don't know. Stephen probably don't, doesn't remember all those college years ago, whether or not he felt inspired while he was writing it, but it doesn't matter. You see what it is now. So that would be my encouragement for anyone who's creative is do it, actually do it so that you can call yourself a doer of that thing. All right. Well, that's probably a good, um, we'll call this some sort of a cadence. How about that? Not like the finale of the conversation. We'll just, just, just like the end of a movement, we'll say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be great. I don't know. I'd love to come back on later when maybe, especially after the work is done or at least closer or, or something and talk more about 
Rhinish or you know any of those things. It would be a lot of fun, especially if you guys can read it and 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 give thoughts out. So I'll send you both the copy when I'm done. Thank you. And even the process, the translation process, which could be a separate like, what's that like to translate something and put it? It's not word for word necessarily. That would be really interesting to get into the details of because it's different. It's different than writing. Yet there's something similar. Um, and and Simone Vey, who I like a lot, said we should write the way we translate. And I don't translate a lot. My students are way better translators than me because I don't I don't actually translate very often. So now I'm getting a glimpse of what that means by doing this translation. I mean, I've done it smaller works in the past for professors and stuff, but doing a long project like this, um, it, it's making me think then what does that mean we should write like we translate? So you have ideas and you're just putting them down and trying to keep yourself out of it in a way. And I think that's great. Okay, well, thanks for starting the week with me. It's been great having coffee and conversation with you guys here at the start of the week. Thank you, it's been awesome. Subscribe to the ColbyCast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam. <laughs>